Hey guys, this is Cobain the Christian. Today we're going to be continuing our scripted video discussion on the purpose and the nature of prayer in the Christian life and in the Christian interpretation of the world. I'm going to uh, try much harder to stick to the script um, in a literal sense uh, and not you know, use it as an opportunity to discuss a variety of other issues which may well be interesting in their own right but which would wreck the capacity of the um, series to actually be understood as a single topic of discussion. Before we get started with that discussion, I wanted to say a few things about the Patreon. Again, uh, I am so thankful and so moved, genuinely, that um, at the response that I've gotten on Patreon, so thank you so very much. Um, I have set up a three-tier system. Uh, you've got plus, you have premium, and then you have elite. Now the plan is for each one of these tiers to entail some degree of exclusive content. However, I do not have specific plans for the kind of content that will be produced at that top level. Uh, but I am happy to announce that the premium content, in addition to complete interviews, one of uh, which will be with uh, uh, Dr. Jared Goff, uh, in addition to having a guaranteed right of access to the full interviews, full videos of debates, and so forth, I will also now be releasing a weekly book review on a book that I may have read in the past or may have you know read in the past week. Uh, so every week I will produce a video. I'm not sure how long it will be uh, or a podcast. Probably won't be included PowerPoint except in special situations. And usually those book reviews will not be accessible to anyone except premium subscribers. That is $10 and up. Uh, also, uh, I'm also very happy to announce that plus subscribers who whose patronage is 5 to $10, now have access to a new um, degree of exclusive content, and that's the chapter-by-chapter, blow-by-blow discussion of the entire Space Trilogy. So I would say probably about two-thirds of that is going to be released on an exclusive basis that is only released to those who have signed up to Plus and Up. However... I do want to emphasize that because I am now including that in the scope of premium content, the goal, and I very much take this seriously, the goal is not to you know, start cutting off four out of the five videos that I do every week to the general, you know, to a general audience, but to produce these podcasts or videos uh, on top of the pre-existing amount of content that I want to produce per week. So uh, I am working on my master's thesis right now. That will be done very soon. I do ask for your prayers in working through that thesis. Uh, once it's done, I will discuss the subject on YouTube. Uh, but with all of that said, let's get into the subject of today's video. So we discussed before how there's this idea of memory, that contemplation of a thing, which in the mind of God actually creates the possibility 
for its own existence. And we discussed how Passover is the birthday of Israel. Israel is born again out of the night in which all Egypt is put into the night of death. At the turning of the day, at midnight, the angel of the Lord, who is called here the angel of death, but we showed that it was, in fact, the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ, he passes through the entire land of Egypt, and he covers over and protects those houses which are marked with blood. That's what Meredith Klein argues Passa means in the book of Exodus. There's multiple words translated pass through or pass over. One of them is Passa, and he argues persuasively to my mind that it is better understood as cover over. So the angel of the Lord stands in front of the door of the Israelite home, the very door which is marked with blood, anticipating the blood of Christ, Christ being God incarnate, who gives us new birth. Um, he stands in front of those doors. So the firstborn children of Israel, symbolically speaking, do die, but they are born again in the resurrection the next morning. Now, this is why in the ritual law of the Torah, there's this thing called the redemption of the firstborn. The redemption of the firstborn is a ritual buying back of your firstborn son from the obligation to offer him as a sacrifice. Now, some biblical critics have foolishly argued that this somehow indicates that Israel at one point was offering human sacrifice legitimately under kind of um, what would be considered orthodox mosaic religion uh, and they argue that Exodus uh, 12 and following is actually documenting and describing the obligation to sacrificially offer your firstborn sons but it's just ludicrous because the whole purpose of these texts about the offering of the firstborn that is um, all the first who open the womb are mine is what God says the whole point of that is undermined if there's not a redemption of the firstborn, a buying back of the firstborn. So God creates by contemplating in his mind, in his name, the idea of a nation. He creates the possibility for Israel's existence, and Israel finds her own existence in dwelling in that memory that God has of them. And so Passover is described as the event wherein God remembers Israel. You'll notice in Leviticus chapter 2 where you have a tribute offering of bread. Uh, many echoes of Passover in this offering. Uh, it's not the only thing going on, but it's one of them. Uh, it is an offering of remembrance. And we're talking here about texts like God remembered Noah. To remember someone or some group of people when we're talking about God, is for God to draw them into his mind and act upon that basis. So if they're rebellious, as in the book of Revelation with respect to Babylon, God remembered Babylon to avenge the blood of the saints upon her. So Israel and God dwell in each other and live in the interior life or the heart of the other. And this is what sets Israel apart as a holy nation, as a kingdom of priests. So 
now with that kind of summed up with I don't want to just like jump in without at least giving a fair summary um, we'll get into the actual pre-written bit so by the mutual interiority of Israel and God in their mutual act of memory the Passover becomes that which creates and sustains the nation Israel is in its very being the nation called and consecrated by God as a kingdom of priests by its redemption from the house of slavery yet how is this true for later generations in many cases according to the biblical authors it simply was not true that these later generations were authentically included in that nation which was born ontologically speaking in the event of the exodus when you read the book of judges you find that the great sin of that era is the failure to transmit the memory of God's activity we see in the book of Deuteronomy that the central thread here is the succession of Moses to Joshua now in the five points of the biblical covenant uh, the last point of that covenant deals with succession it deals with continuity it deals with the perpetuation of the covenantal structure into the future and so in the book of Deuteronomy you have the second generation uh, relative to the exodus from Egypt and in the book you have a constant refrain about the necessity of remembering God in all things you put God's name over your doorpost and on your forehead on your hand you speak of God to your children when you rise up when when you sit down God defines the entirety of your uh, domestic life and that is what transmits the corporate memory of God's elective purpose to future generations and thereby actually constitutes them as members of the elect nation born in and out of the water of divine memory in the path towards Israel's holy calling thus is the door of memory to submit to the will of God Israel is constantly engaging in the discipline of self mortifying the mind God always calls Israel to say to itself this is who I am it's called to speak in the words of the Torah my father was a wandering Aramean every Israelite must liturgically repeat that the Lord is my God hero Israel the Lord is our God the Lord is one or the Lord alone Israel liturgically recites its own history in its festival life it is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation not just in our minds because we've read it in a text but in the constant ear it's always being heard by the faithful Israelite who participates in that liturgical life the definitive act of God's memory of the people of Israel that came about in the Exodus becomes an ongoing reality throughout the generations 
of those who share in the divine memory by bringing the name of the great rememberer into their own minds. And just notice, in conjunction with the theology of the name and language of memory, this phrase, throughout your generations, there's a reason for that. The throughout your generations accentuates the fact that the name is being proclaimed in large part so that it might be transmitted to all generations, so that it will not be lost. Just imagine for a moment the concept of symbol. Okay, just think about the concept of symbol. Think about how complicated that is. If you weren't, if you weren't allowed to actually use the word, it would be immensely complicated to enunciate the conceptual framing of the word. The only way in which it becomes part of the cultural memory, the only way in which people can continue throughout generations to think seriously about complicated concepts is by these concepts being packaged up and sealed in names or in words. So where names do not merely have an external uh, role in signifying a concept. Names are instrumental in developing our apprehension of a concept. And insofar as the human apprehension of a thing according to its nature is the very means by which a thing is perfected and the potentials of its nature are realized, this process is a dyad, a dialogue rather, that flows between man and the cosmos. So it's not just that man better understands the cosmos, it's that in better understanding the cosmos, the cosmos changes, it is transfigured. So the reality of memory and the centrality of memory is not something which is just internal to the nation of Israel. To say that Israel stands as the elect nation according to God's permeation of its collective mind, we might call it the collective consciousness of Israel, and there's scientific data indicating the ontological impact, genuinely and truly, look up the Global Consciousness Project, the ontological impact of joint attention when it flows through a large um, a portion of the human family. But to say that the nation is elect according to God's suffusion of their consciousness and their mind is to affirm their outward mission. Israel and the Holy Temple in particular, and by temple I mean the central sanctuary, Deuteronomy chapter 12, reason that Jerusalem is not named in Deuteronomy chapter 12 is not because it's a clever forger who's trying to give the illusion of antiquity. It's because the central sanctuary in Israel's liturgical history moved around. You can find it in Judges. There's one central sanctuary, but it moves to different locations. So it's just, I mean, it's, it's quite appalling that um, such a basic fact is simply not recognized by by many alleged biblical scholars. You see in Jeremiah, for example, God says in the first person that he first set his name to dwell in Shiloh. And this is in the context of uh, delivering a prophetic warning about the judgment on the temple. 
So Israel is the context where God sets his name. The name is the public declaration of his reality. It is the revelation of his qualities and his character. What distinguishes him as who he is, his personality. The exaltation of the name of God through the event of the Exodus, where Israel was ultimately, in the end, in terms of, you know, when it got down to brass tacks, what decision did they make while they were exiting Egypt? Israel was ultimately obedient to the commandments, despite consistent murmuring along the way. What this meant is that the name of God went forth and sanctified many from the nations. I have video on Gentiles in the Old Testament. Uh, I'll probably be making another video or a series dealing with this issue because it's an issue so many people raise and the answers to this question are so robust and good, but it, it's very rare that somebody actually, from a Christian perspective, articulates these answers. God did not forget the nations throughout the Old Testament, and the evidence for this is just simply extraordinary. Um, in Exodus 12, there's this, we might perceive it to be kind of an offhand statement. A mixed multitude from the nations comes up out of Egypt with the Israelites. Now, if we've been paying attention, then we know that very consistently God has been saying that the plagues are so that Israel might there's the phrase, know that I am the Lord. And remember, the Lord, that's the tetragrammaton, and that entails a set of specific qualities. So it's not just, you know, I am the person that I happen to be, but I am the Lord in that I reflect the qualities that are embodied in this name. But it's not only that Israel might know that I am the Lord. The very same phrase is used to describe God's relationship with the Egyptians, so that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord. There undoubtedly were many Egyptians who could see the handwriting on the wall and went out of Egypt with the children of Israel. The process by which you could be joined to the family of Abraham was simply to be adopted into the familial and genealogical structure. So if you were a Canaanite, for example, but you wanted to serve God, you didn't want to be destroyed. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are explicitly described when the text is properly understood as engaging in a prophetic ministry to the Canaanites for over two centuries directly, and then two more centuries while they're in Egypt, but they're still traveling up north into the land of Canaan. So if you're a Canaanite, all you would do is you would go, you would become circumcised, you would be adopted into the nation, you would lose your Canaanite identity, you'd become part of the circumcision, and then you would simply return to the land and the conquest and inherit the land of your forefathers according to the flesh. So we see in uh, Genesis 34 that the Shechemites, before they are killed in um, a horrific slaughter by Jacob's um, sons, Simeon and Levi, for which um, they're disinherited, uh, the, the Shechemites were planning to be circumcised. Let me just throw in here. 
this is a great example of how God always turns curses to blessing. The Levites in the story are disinherited. They have no portion in the land of Israel, says God, and says Jacob. So what happens? Well, what ends up happening is that even though they have no portion in the land of Israel, God flips and inverts it so that this very curse is transformed into a blessing. It has the same shape, but a different character. So Levites are not, do not have a tribal inheritance and allotment in the land of Israel. Instead, they are spread throughout the land because they serve most near to God as the priestly tribe for the whole nation. Scripture just really hangs together in these beautiful ways. Um, in any case, the statement in Exodus 9.16 that God raised up Pharaoh so that his name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth is not kind of a throwaway bit of um, you know mosaic fancy. You know, and it's not. And, and this is important because I think um, you might assume that it means basically well, God has the reputation of being, you know, the biggest guy on the street. God has the reputation for doing really impressive stuff. And so, in that sense, people can take God's concern for the exaltation of his own name as being fundamentally disconnected from the well-being of the nations of the world. But, if you look at the instances in which his concern for his divine reputation is discussed in most detail... It is always related to the fact that God desires the nations to be redeemed. He yokes Israel to himself, binding its destiny to his own through the Torah and as embodied at the temple. Every biblical covenant is centered in a sanctuary. The Torah is given in the context of the dwelling of God with man. This is always the case. Whenever there's a change in covenant, there's a change in the kind of dwelling that God has with his children. Just read through the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Now, these cleanness and uncleanness rules, their relevance is almost entirely predicated on the existence of a central sanctuary in which the glory of God dwells. The fact that in Judaism, after the fall of the Second Temple, very um, striking language is used to describe the extension of the divine presence into the world and into and through the human body and soul. The fact that this language is used Yes, it attests to a kind of inconsistency, but I think it also bears witness to the fact that Jesus is objectively the Lord of the world. Christianity is not at bottom an ideology. The Christian gospel is a narrative. It is an announcement of a crucial turning point in the history of creation. And Jesus, as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, is and always will be objectively the head of the Jewish nation, even when he is not recognized. As such, Jesus' role as the incarnate word, as he who provides the divine presence to all the descendants of Adam, to he who has shed the light of Christ 
to the ends of the earth. Um, that has a ripple effect that can't just be limited to you know explicit missions work. No, there's a an alteration in kind of the disposition of mankind in relation to God. I mean, Saint Gregory Palamas um, uh, says, uh, and oh, I don't have the exact passage on me right now, so you know, don't. I just say you know, we'd have to look up the exact passage before you lay too much on this. But Palamas speaking about Islam, um, uh, speaking about the eradication of crude forms of idolatry among the Arabs, he attributes it to kind of the objective impact of the incarnation on the world. In that even though their profession, that is the Arabs, the those who had been um, crude polytheists before the rise of Islam, uh, even when the profession of faith in God is deformed and, uh, and corrupted in so many ways, the existence of these kind of crude polytheistic systems, slippery word, but you know what I mean, these crude polytheistic systems it ceases to be viable because Christ has done something objective in the incarnation the death and the resurrection. So there is an innate perception and recognition that the divine presence simply does flow out and make these laws of cleanness and uncleanness relevant to all Jews, whether or not they are in direct contact with the temple. I'm talking about the inner logic of the system. When Israel's mind is filmed with the reality of their faithful God, and that's what the Tetragrammaton signifies when you work letter by letter it out. When Israel's mind is filled with the memory of their faithful God, when the name of God is engraved in letters of fire upon their heart and upon their mind, they become what a human being is meant to be, a microcosm of the world, a miniaturized representation of the entirety of creation. Because to remember God is to be included in God's outwards constitution of the world, procession and reversion. The glory of God, in the same motion that it reaches out and constitutes the world, imprinting his own divine archetype onto the canvas of that which did not exist. In that same motion, he reaches out and embraces the mind and sanctifies it. But as we know from our previous discussion, there's more to the process than just this outwards motion. In the motion wherein God extends himself outwards to give birth to the world in his procession, that's the technical term, different from the procession of the Holy Spirit, so don't get confused, the cosmos is gathered back into his divine heart in the very same motion. These two directions occur at once and are mutually necessitating. So to be irradiated in one's mind by divine thought means that you yourself are being repatterned according to God's repatterning or of, uh, according to God's pattern of activity. When the activities of God, when the pattern of his 
self-expression, when his arm movements are shaping who you are, it has a exponential effect because it means that you as the image of God are now reaching out yourself and gathering up the creation into your heart and into your mind. And because you have been united to God, we would say because you are part of the body of Christ, this process whereby you are reaching out and gathering the world into your heart entails that it is being gathered in the very same moment into the heart and into the mind of God. So Israel, when it has lived faithfully, it refracts the glory of God out to the nations as an angled mirror and thus gathers the nations into her bosom, offering them to God. So in the next video, we will talk about many of the specific images that is used for this process. Uh, but just notes as a kind of anticipation here that the language of the heart is inseparable from the language of the temple in that the temple is the heart of Israel and the heart of creation. That The Holy of Holies is the heart of the temple. And because creation is an imprint of God as divine archetype, we see the language of the body in terms of its centeredness on the heart being reflected here. And so to say that one is gathering the creation into one's own heart, I want you to think in terms of the imagery of going out, reaping a harvest, turning it into bread, turning the vine into wine, and bringing it back to set on the altar of God. And that is what it means to gather the creation into the heart of God. So I'm looking forward to continuing this discussion. Uh, until then, thank you very much for watching or listening. Uh, if you have uh, not become a patron yet and you are financially uh, on, in good shape, please consider doing so. Uh, and I also I, I meant to mention at the beginning, there is a, uh, a, a very straightforward way to contribute 99 cents per month through the podcast form of my page. That's at Anchor. Uh, at my Anchor website, and Anchor distributes it to Apple Podcasts, to Spotify, etc., etc. Um, so it's a very useful platform. Uh, in any case, um, if you these these ninety nine cent contributions really do add up, um, and uh, and they're extremely extremely helpful, uh, uh, just in terms of kind of you know meeting basic um, living expenses. So thank you so much for everybody who has made these contributions. Um, I really do find a, a great deal of joy in um, engaging with you guys and in participating in this uh, little community. Um, so I will see you next time, uh, by God's will, tomorrow.